This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. We're very, very excited about today's show. But really quick, a couple of announcements. Number one, I got an email from Spotify the other day, and guess what Spotify's doing now? They're allowing reviews. They haven't allowed reviews basically up until this point, but you can go to our show, and this is my call to action for you. Please go to our show on the Spotify app or if you're listening on your desktop or something like that, and please give this show a five-star rating. Again, I'm getting these weird things on Apple Podcasts where people are like, I love this show. It's my favorite. I can't wait to hear it. And then they give me a three-star rating. It's like, no, no. Like, if you're going to do it, please do it with a five-star rating. So go to Spotify and do that. Spotify. Also, guys, we're right towards the end of the year. So keep us in mind with year-end giving. You've heard me talk about that before, but let's go ahead and get into today's content. So today we're talking about the best books of 2021. The thing is, I'm so excited to bring these to you because I think about this podcast literally all year. So if I finish a book in the first week of January, I'm thinking about whether or not I'm going to be giving an award at the end of the year. So I'm really, really glad to get this to you. And for this year, for 2021, this was oddly enough, the most prolific year of reading for me personally. Okay. So I know there are guys out there uh, that, that read a hundred plus books a year. They're just crushing books. Some guys read are reading like a book or two, like every few days. It's just kind of crazy. But by the time you will have heard this podcast, I will finish 45 books this year. And so that's the most I've ever done. I think I've been in the mid thirties before. So I absolutely crushed it this year. So was able to find some time. And, and most of that was me actually tangibly reading the books, reading every single word of the book. It's not listening to them. I think I listened to maybe five or six books and I counted those, but read a lot of books this year. And just so you guys know, in terms of how I read, some of you are like, man, that's so many books. I read like, you know, one every couple of months. Like, how are you able to read that much? The biggest thing, and I talk about this every year, is I basically read off of my phone or off of my tablet. So the thing with my phone is uh, today, for instance, uh, for my wife for Christmas, we got her some window tint. And so while I was waiting for the window tint to get done, I've got my phone with me, which means I've got my book with me. So here I am waiting an hour and a half. You know, I could use that time non-productively, but I've got my fo- my my book right there on my phone. And so I know some of you guys are like tangible book readers, but for me, you don't always remember your book. And here you are waiting at the the oil uh, or at the gas station or waiting at the you know somewhere waiting for your kid to get out of practice or something like that. And you're like, crap, you know, my book's sitting there on the bookshelf or it's sitting there on my nightstand. I don't have it with me. That's one way that you can get a lot of reading in is make sure that you have it around you at all times. And this is another thing before we get into the awards that I'm going to be giving out today is uh, one of my favorite quotes that I've heard from somebody. And I don't know who it's actually attributed to. It's like, there are people that read and then there are idiots. Okay. So you probably heard me say that basically every year. I don't understand why adult men don't read. One of the things about the kind of Christian men's space is there's a dearth of content in that space because there's a dearth of readers. There's a lot of guys that are in that space that kind of fit that dynamic that just don't read. You know, they want to do something else entirely. But one of the easiest ways for you to be able to stave off, you know, uh, the degradation of your brain and to encourage yourself to continue to develop as you grow into old age is to read books. I highly, highly, highly encourage you guys to read books. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to keep banging that drum. So just get used to it. Now, we're going to go ahead and get into the award. 
awards that I'm giving out for this year, but I'm making a slight change this year that I haven't done in all my other years that I've done best books of the year. So what I'm doing is I'm giving the same category out, but I'm going to describe two winners for each category. Okay. Because this year I read a lot of books that were released in 2021 and I released a lot of books that were released not in 2021. So 2020 or before that. And so that's the big thing is I didn't want you guys to miss out on books that I read this year for the first time that maybe were classics or maybe were released just a few years ago. So typically I just kind of mix and match those, but this year I'm going to give you one in each one of these categories, one for 2021 and one for any year. So here are the awards that I'm going to be giving out today in both of those different, you know, categories of 2021 and other years. Most interesting book, most timely book, most challenging book, best classic, most useful book, most impactful book, most entertaining book, best fiction book, best reread book, most disappointing book, worst book, almost the best book, and then best book. And guys, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to want to stick around by the time we get to the worst book section of this podcast, because I read the worst book of my entire life this year. Okay. And I read it early. So I knew in like February that this was going to be the worst book that I read this year. But as time has gone on, I think it literally is from cover to cover, the absolute worst book I've ever read in my entire life. And it's one that you may have heard of before. So you're going to want to stick around for that. But let's go ahead and get into the first one here. The most interesting book from any year is A Conflict of Visions, Ideological Origins of Political Struggles. This is from Thomas Sowell in 2007. So with all of these, I'm going to be reading the description, why I'm giving it that award, give you my favorite quote, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next one. So here's the description of this book. Controversies in politics arise from many sources, but the conflicts that endure for generations or centuries show a remarkable, a remarkably consistent pattern. In the classic work, Thomas Sowell analyzes this pattern. He describes the two competing visions that shape our debates about the nature of reason, justice, equality, and power. The constrained vision, which he sees as human nature as unchanging and selfish, and the unconstrained vision, in which human nature is malleable and perfectible. A conflict of visions offers a convincing case that ethical and policy disputes circle around the disparity between both outlooks. So the reason why I'm naming this as my, uh, as my, one of the most interesting books that I read this year, the most interesting book I read uh, from any year is because this is such a dense subject. And if you've ever read anything by Thomas Sowell and you know, he's going to make another appearance on this list a little bit later, it's incredibly dense. He has an insane amount of citations, but I've never thought about conflicting viewpoints in terms of constrained vision and unconstrained vision. And so this is a book that really gets into that. It's a classic. I believe if you've already got a subscription to, uh, oh gosh, I'm, it's going through my head right now, but Audible, there you go. Audible, I think you can get this book for free on there. So guys, you should definitely check this one out, but I'm gonna go ahead and read my favorite quote to you here. And guys, with any of these that are my quote unquote favorite quotes, it's one of many favorite quotes, especially with a book like this. I have so many quotes that I could pull out for you, but I'm just pulling out a random one that is especially good, but there are a lot of great quotes, but here's a great one from that. The most dangerous state in the growth of civilization may well be in which man has come to regard all these beliefs as superstitions and refuses to accept or to submit to anything which he does not rationally understand. The rationalist whose reason is not sufficient to teach him those limitations of power of conscious of the power of conscious reason and who despises all the institutions and customs which have not been consciously designed would thus become the destroyer of the civilization built upon them. So there you go. That is my most interesting book from any year, A Conflict of Visions, Ideological Origins of political struggles. Now, the one that is the most interesting book that I read of 2021, of a release from 2021, is Breathe, A Life in Flow by Hicks and Gracie. So here is the description here. 
From legendary Brazilian jiu-jitsu and MMA master Hicks and Gracie comes a riveting, insightful memoir that weaves together the story of Gracie's stunning career with the large history of the Gracie family's dynasty and the founding of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, showing how the connection between mind and body can be harnessed for success both inside and outside the ring. So the reason why this was the most interesting book that I read of this year is because... Um, it was so unique to get a behind the scenes look at this guy's life. Okay. So, and we got a chance to talk to him about that on episode 242 of this podcast. I think I'll be able to put that in the show notes. If not, just scroll to 242 of this podcast because we actually, talk, actually talked about this book because I knew a lot of things about Hicks and Gracie's life, but there were a lot of details in there, obviously that I'd never been a part of. And when I saw, you know, how long this book was, it's a rather short read. Um, and you know, as I was kind of getting into it, I'm like, Oh, I'm wondering if this is going to give me exactly what I want, but I could not believe how interesting it was to hear about, you know, how he transitioned into to being the Gracie family champion. Some of the fights that he had that no one knew about some of the, the gym fights and things like that, the gym storming that went on an incredibly, incredibly interesting book. And here's the thing. If you're an MMA or jujitsu person, you kind of have to read this book because because it's Hicks and Gracie. He's like the name brand from the name, name brand family, the first family of mixed martial arts, essentially. But even if you're not an MMA fan, even if you're not a jujitsu fan, there's a lot of great tangible knowledge that you can gain from a book like this. But let me go and read my favorite quote from that book. And this is a quote where it's after he found out that his older brother, brother Holes, who at the time was the Gracie family champion, had died in an accident. So here's the quote. Although he looked perfectly fine, his neck was broken and Holes was dead. I received the news over the phone and it took me only seconds to know that my life would never be the same. Not only had I lost an idol, a teacher, my favorite brother, my, uh, but I was now the official family champion. Now I would have to answer all the challenges and lead the next generation of Gracie fighters. I was now the last line of defense for the Gracie family. So that is my most interesting book that I read in 2021, Breathe a Life and Flow by Hicks and Gracie. So let's move on to the next category here. The next award is most timely book. And the most timely book of any year is Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave by Frederick Douglass. This is from 1845. So here's a description. This classic of American literature a dramatic autobiography of the early life of an American slave was first published in 1845 when its author had just achieved his freedom. It is a story that shocked the world with its firsthand account of the horrors of slavery. The book was an incredible success. It sold over 30,000 copies and was an international bestseller. His eloquence gives a clear indication of the powerful principles that led Douglas to become the first great African-American leader in the United States. So you might be thinking, Kyle, this book was released in the 1840s. How is it the most timely book that you've read? The reason is, is because this is a guy that had an actual axe to grind. Okay. Frederick Douglass. And he's a very complicated character. There's not, I can't say that I agree with everything he's ever said or written. You can't really say that about anybody. But the reason why I think it's timely is because to listen to this man's perspective who experienced actual slavery, actual oppression, actual racial violence, not any of this made up stuff that we see, you know, all these race things that happen end up being race hoaxes in the long run that we see, well, most of them that we see in modernity, but to see his perspective and to see how he was able to come out that not come out on the other side, not just be this incredibly bitter person, but to be this incredibly driven person, I think is very timely for today, where in our modern society, we basically give people plaudits for, for being victims. We give them extra bonus points for being victims. So I was glad to see that and read that this year. Here's my favorite quote from that book. My long crushed spirit rose cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place. And I now resolve that however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. Okay. So that is the most timely book of any year narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, Douglass an American slave by Frederick Douglass. All right, let's get into the one for this year, and that is Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe by Vodi Bauckham. So let me read the description to you here. 
The death of George Floyd at the hands of police in the summer of 2020 shocked the nation. As riots rocked American cities, Christians affirmed from the pulpit and in social media that black lives matter and that racial justice is a gospel issue. But what if there is more to the social justice movement than those Christians understand? Even worse, what if they've been duped into preaching ideas that actually oppose the kingdom of God? In this powerful book, Vody Bakum, a preacher, professor, and cultural apologist, explains the sinister worldview behind the social justice movement and critical race theory revealing how it already has infiltrated some seminaries, leading to internal denominational conflict, canceled careers, and lost livelihoods. Like a fault line, it threatens American culture in general and the evangelical church in particular. Whether you're a layperson who has woken up in a strange new world and wonders how to engage sensitively and effectively in the conversation on race, or a pastor who is grappling with a polarization or the polarized congregation, this book offers the clarity and understanding to either hold your ground or reclaim it. So obviously, this shouldn't be a surprise why I think this is the most timely book that I read this year. Uh, This book has done incredibly, incredibly, incredibly well. Um, we're, we're working on getting him on the show to talk about and all those different things. The thing with this book is it's speaking directly to things that are happening on the ground, because one of the, the worst things that I saw that happened in 2020 and then one of the worst things I saw basically in culture is I assumed that leftists were going to make everything a cultural issue. And they were going to make the George Floyd thing a, a a racial issue, even though race had nothing to do with what happened in that situation. We see no evidence whatsoever of that. Anyone that says that is just projecting. They don't have any evidence to provide that either. But is what I saw within congregations. Congregations all of a sudden, you know, posting black squares on their Instagrams or saying Black Lives Matter or doing an entire series basically saying that, you know, they need to treat people in their congregations differently based on the color of their skin, not based, you know, immutable characteristics. And Vody basically tackles that directly. I want to read my favorite quote from that book here. The facts about Black Lives Matter are not in dispute. The organization is Marxist, revolutionary, feminist, misandrist, pro-LGBTQIA+, pro-abortion, and anti-family with roots in the occult. It is unacceptable for Christians to partner with, celebrate, identify with, or promote this organization. And that includes being bullied or pressured into using the phrase Black Lives Matter. This will not repair the fault lines. Nothing will. These divisions are both real and necessary. As I said at the outset, the goal here is to be on the right side of the fault line when the catastrophe comes. In the meantime, we must love. I do not mean that we must accept the world's faulty, emasculated, unbiblical version of love, the version that sees any disagreement or confrontation as inherently unloving. No, we must love each other with a tenacious, biblical, Christ-like love. So I I love stuff from Vody Bauckham. This book made it onto our 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list. You should definitely, definitely check that book out if you have not done already. And that is the most timely book that I read in 2021, Fault Lines, the Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe by Vody Bauckham. Now we're going to move on to the most challenging book from any year, and that is Scary God, Introducing the Fear of the Lord to the Postmodern Church. And that was from Maddie Montgomery in 2018. Here's the description here. Discover the great wonder and wild freedom the fear of the Lord can bring. God's character is like a mighty diamond, a glorious convergence of respect, awe, reverence, adoration, thanksgiving, and yes, fear. Yet why is it so difficult to reconcile the wrath of God with the love of God? As Maddie teaches, it is simply a continual awareness of Jesus, our mighty warrior king. We should not be afraid to come to God. Rather, we should be afraid to be against him. So I had him on episode 244 of this podcast to discuss this book in detail. So you should definitely check out episode 244 with Maddie Montgomery. But the reason why this was the most challenging book that I read of any year from this year is I never really 
you know, I knew about a just God and I knew about the anger of God, but he spent, you know, 60, 70,000 maybe words uh, or more words talking specifically about the subject of an angry God and how that's a good thing and not something that we should be afraid of in the sense that we normally think of being afraid. And so it really gets into a lot of detail within the book. You should definitely pick that book up, but I'll read my favorite quote from it here. I've lived most of my life in a church culture that has tried to teach us that our God is passive, weak, and indifferent. We have developed theologies and philosophies that offer excuses for the seeming absence of his power or presence with us, and we have diminished the indescribable glory of his weighty nearness to a short list of palatable buzzwords like uplifting or family-friendly or safe. Man, it's just awesome. I'm like, I'm getting excited as I'm reading. I'm messing up my own quote, so I'll get back into it. But don't we need a God that is more than that? When your marriage is hanging on by a thread, don't you need a God who is just more than just safe? When your kid's faith is being shaken by the seductive song of a godless culture and the call of secular humanism is growing louder in their ears, don't you need a God who is more than an uplifting idea? As true biblical faith finds itself on the chopping block of inclusivity and religious relevance, we more than ever need a God who is not subject to our ever-shifting philosophies or worldviews, one who is not open for debate, but one who cannot will not be tamed for the comfort of a self-indulgent generation. So that is the most challenging book that I read this year from a year that is not this year. I'm trying to find a good way of saying it, but Scary God Introducing the Fear of the Lord to the Postmodern Church, and that is from Maddie Montgomery. But the one from this year, from 2021, that is the most challenging book is Beyond Order, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan B. Peterson. So here is the description for those of you that did not read it. In 12 Rules for Life, clinical psychologist and celebrated professor at Harvard and the University of Toronto, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson helped millions of leaders impose order on the chaos of their lives. Now in this bold sequel, Peterson delivers 12 more life-saving principles for resting the exhausting toll that our desire to order the world inevitably takes. So the reason why this is the most challenging book is because if you've read anything from Jordan Peterson before, it's nothing if not challenging, okay? So uh, I even have guys in my foxhole, they're not really big fans of Peterson because they feel like he kind of weaves throughout his writings and his talks and different things like that and maybe doesn't land on on a particular point. I feel differently. I feel like he weaves a lot of different narratives and stories together and then does get to his point. Now, the interesting thing about Beyond Order versus the first uh, 12 rules book is he was writing Beyond Order, you know, these next 12 rules, he was writing that while he was sick, while his wife uh, was very, very sick. At different points, he thought his wife was going to die. He thought he was going to die. It was a very trying situation and a trying time for for everything kind of going on in his life. It's great to see that he's going to be going on tour next year, that he's kind of past all that, but he's writing this in the midst of that. And so you can almost feel a little bit of that angst and that pain in the writing of this book. 12 Rules for Life, in my opinion, is definitely better than Beyond Order, but this is still a fantastic book that I feel like is a must read. But here's one quote, a favorite quote of mine from this book. If power is the problem, then those who have established any authority at all are the singular cause of the world's suffering. If masculinity is the problem, then all males, or even the concept of male, must be attacked and vilified. Such division of the world into the devil without and the saints within justifies self-righteous hatred, necessitated, necessitated by the morality of the ideological system itself. This is a terrible trap. Once the source of evil has been identified, it becomes the duty of the righteous to eradicate it. This is an invitation to both paranoia and persecution. A world where only you and people who think like you are good is also a world where you are surrounded by enemies bent on your destruction who must be fought. So... Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life from this year from Jordan B. Peterson. That is the most challenging book that I took in this year. Now let's move on to the next category here. We're going to go to best classic. So since we're talking about a classic, I can't talk about one from this year. So we're only going to do one from the past. And this is going to be 1984 by George Orwell. And that was released in 1949. So for those of you not aware, let me go and read the description here. 
1984, London is a grim city in a totalitarian state of Oceania where Big Brother is always watching you and the thought police can practically read your mind. Winston Smith is a man in, a great, in grave danger for the simple reason that his memory still functions. Drawn into a forbidden love affair, Winston finds the courage to join a secret revolutionary organization called the Brotherhood, dedicated to the destruction of the party. Together with his beloved Julia, he hazards his life in a deadly match against the powers that be. So why this is the best classic is because, for me personally, I read this book, I think, in like eighth grade. Or something like that. And at that time, it wasn't cool to read. Oh, man, you read the book and did the homework. What a loser. And so I, I didn't really remember anything from this book. But it's been a culturally relevant relevant book since the 40s. And especially with what we've seen now, uh, you know, in this COVID era, I, I would love to say post-COVID era, but we're still living in the middle of it. You know, we're, we're getting variants all the time. And, you know, they're, they're, we're trying these lockdowns again. It's it's a bad kind of crazy time for all of us. And we're, we're just stuck in this milieu. And we're, we're on this hamster wheel trying to get past this COVID stuff, but it was a wonderful read for me to take in this year because it was as if I was reading it for the first time, but it could have very been very well been the most timely book that I read this year as well, even though I kind of gave that award to somebody else. But if this is a book that you haven't read yet, you definitely need to. And this isn't like the most, uh, I guess, quotable book because it's not, you know, a nonfiction book, but there is a quote here that I think really sums up this book, which is who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. And so we're seeing a lot of that. You know, you talk about big tech, you talk about big media. There's a lot of that really trying to control the narrative. And if you're doing that, you're controlling the past, you're changing articles, a lot of stuff that we saw predicted. I, and I don't know if Orwell was best basically trying to predict what was going to be happening in the future. We're seeing that now play out in a totalitarian way, which is kind of kind of scary. But hey, that's not the subject of today's podcast. But that is the best classic that I read this year. And that is 1984 by George Orwell. Now let's move on to the next category here. That is most useful book. So the most useful book from any year is Family Shepherds Calling and Equipping Men to Lead Their Homes. And that is by Vodi Bakum making another appearance. And that's back from 2011. So that is a book that shout out to, to Ryan. And, you know, he's one of our biggest supporters. He's, he actually gave me a copy of this book. It took me a while to get to it, but I did actually read it this year. Very, very, very useful book. I'll read the description here. God has mandated the transfer of his truth from one generation to the next. Because his transfer takes place primarily in the home, Vodi Bakum Jr. seeks to guide men in faithfully shepherding their families. Derived from Bauckham's monthly meetings with men in his church, Family Shepherds calls them into accountability for their God-given responsibilities as husbands and fathers. This book will inspire them to live better, love better, and lead better so that their families will thrive in every way. Bauckham's clear style and practical approach will help men protect their marriage, raise kingdom-minded children, value the synergy between church and home, and navigate difficult family dynamics. It will inspire them to carefully evaluate and live out their roles in all areas of life. Family Shepherds is a book that every father needs and that every church will want as a resource for training the men in their congregations. So I feel like from that description, it answers the question why this is the most useful book of this year. Because it's not very long. I think it's less than 200 pages long, but it is chock full of wisdom for daddies, right? So for all you guys out there that have a spouse, that have children, and you're trying to lead them in a gospel-centered way and have no idea how to do it because it's not been modeled for you, this is a great model. Again, it's better if you have a pastor or, or an elder or someone in your life that can help lead you in this way, but this is a tremendous resource for those of you that really have no idea. So here's a favorite quote from this book. Our goal is the gospel. The approach to family shepherding in this book and the things we do in our church are not predicated on statistics about church dropouts, though that is important. Nor is our belief that all the church's problems stem from a lower view of the family, though that issue is significant. We do not, and what I'm writing about here, or what, sorry, let me go back. What we do, and what I'm writing about here, 
starts with the belief that the gospel is our only hope. The family is not the gospel, nor is the family as important as the gospel. The family is a delivery mechanism for the gospel. So guys, most useful book I read for many year, Family Shepherds Calling and Equipping Men to Lead Their Homes by Vodi Bauckham. Also, 2021, the one I read for this year, is What to Say When, The Complete New Guide to Discussing Abortion by Sean Carney and Steve Carlin. So I had those guys on the podcast, on Podcast 262, and uh, it was a great conversation, but let me read the description here before I get into why I gave it the award. What do I say when abortion and rape come up? What about my body, my choice? When should I avoid politics? From forced birth to gender to shout your abortion, much has changed since abortion was legalized in 1973, yet it remains the most controversial issue of our time. What to say when equips you to with proven approaches from the front lines to help you know exactly what to say and not to say when abortion comes up. Balance converting hearts versus winning arguments. Navigate the changing and bizarre new ways abortion is promoted. Go on offense and stay on topic when defending life. So obviously, this is a how-to book. Right. So the reason why it's the most useful book is because I talk to you guys about abortion all the time and I try to equip you with how you can deal with a lot of the arguments in, in those different areas. You've heard me talk about one of my favorite podcasts that I did this year was where I taught you how to deal with pro-abortion argumentation. A lot of that argumentation came from that resource, came from this book. So again, go back to episode 262 of this podcast where I talked to those guys about it. But but this is a great short book for you guys to have as a reference guide for when you know you're going to be talking to somebody and this these subjects come up and or to have these arguments written on your heart so when it comes up and you don't have time to prepare for the conversation, it's able to just kind of roll off your tongue. But I'll give you my favorite quote from the book here. As deeply as abortion impacts a woman, her body is impacted secondarily. Her body is the setting for the abortion. In other words, the abortion will be done on the baby, not the woman. It's the baby who experiences the primary effects of abortion, and it's the baby's body that is affected directly. The heart stopped by abortion belongs to the baby, not to the mother. Abortion tears the baby's limbs apart, not the mother's limbs. The aftermath of an abortion is the lifeless body of the baby, not the mother. So it's a great quote from that. That's obviously for someone that's making the my body, my choice argument. But again, the most useful book that I read this year, What to Say When, The Complete New Guide to Discussing Abortion by Sean Carney and Steve Carlin. And this is probably a good time to mention that with all these different awards, all these books are going to be in the show notes so you guys can check them out later and have them for your use. But let's move on to the next one here. And that is the most impactful book that I read, not from 2021. And that's The Theft of America's Soul, Blowing the Lid Off the Lies That Are Destroying Our Country by Phil Robertson. So that's back from 2019. Here's a description of that book. It's time to take back what the devil has stolen and put God back into our culture. The theft of America's soul is a prophetic wake-up call for all who desire to see our nation thrive, challenging readers to exchange uh, to exchange these 10 lies for truths that will bring peace of mind, harmony, and prosperity back to our country. An invitation to experience the life-giving, peace-filling, holy transforming love of God. Phil Robertson, patriarch of A&E's Duck Dynasty and one of the most recognized voices of conservative Christianity in America, believes that little by little, generation by generation, America has allowed the lines of morality, decency, and virtue to be erased. Our values have disappeared as we began to believe lies, such as that God is dead, truth is relative, and unity is impossible, and have brought discord, division, and protest. But Phil also believes that things can change. So the reason why this is one of the most impactful books is because I read this book before I went out there and was interviewed on Phil's show down in Louisiana this summer, and he's got a way of saying things in such a simple way that leave a profound impact. So again, you know, this is the most impactful book, but you're not going to get 
these unbelievably deep theological takeaways. It's not going to be, you know, like, you know, talking to Eric Metaxas or Dr. Jonathan McClatchy or some of these people that just go way out into the ether in a lot of these academic or philosophical arguments. He keeps it very, very straightforward. I mean, he, he talks about it all the time. Like he's trying to preach to rednecks, you know, to people that can, you know, understand things in a very, very simple way. And there's a lot of profound nature in even keeping things at such a simple level. And my favorite quote from this is whenever he was a guest at Angola prison. And so Angola is a maximum security prison in Louisiana. It's where the roughest of the rough criminals from that area go. A lot of those guys are actually on death row. And this was whenever he was talking to the prisoners there. Gentlemen, this is the end of the line for most of you. I said, most of you are going to die in this prison, but I have some good news for you. You can be under lock and key, but you can still be free. So uh, he made a big impact in that prison. A lot of those men accepted Christ there because of uh, the things that he was able to do and because of the Holy Spirit working through his words. So very, very impactful book, The Theft of America's Soul, Blowing the Lid Off the Lies That Are Destroying Our Country by Phil Robertson. Now, the most impactful book that I read this year from 2021 is Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. And that's by Michelle Black. So let me read the description here. The shocking and affecting memoir from a gold star widow searching for the truth behind her Green Beret husband's death, this book bears witness to the true sacrifices made by military families. When Green Beret Brian Black was killed in ambush in Niger in 2017, his wife Michelle saw her worst nightmare become a reality. She was left alone with her grief and with her two young sons to raise. But what followed Brian's death was an even more difficult journey for the young widow. After receiving very few details about the attack that took her husband's life, it was up to Michelle to find answers. It became her mission to learn the truth about that day in Niger, and sacrifice is a result of that mission. In this heartbreaking and revelatory memoir, Michelle uses exclusive interviews with the survivors of her husband's unit, uh, research into the military leaders' leadership and accountability, and her own unique vantage point as a gold star widow to tell a previously unknown story. Sacrifice is both an honest, emotional look inside the military marriage and a searing investigation of the people and decisions at the heart of the U.S. military. So I had her on our podcast for episode 198. And guys, just to be straight up honest with you, the reason why I'm giving this the most impactful book award is because I'm not an overly emotional guy when it comes to being teary-eyed or crying or getting sad or any of those things. I'm usually emotional in the excited and you know fired up way. Several points during the reading of this book, I was brought to tears and I had to close it. I had to close it, kind of walk away from my from my iPad or from my phone or from my whatever. I just couldn't deal with what was being described in the book. And it was almost like I could feel part of her pain. You know, when her and her father-in-law went and told the boys and trying to trying to deal with that whole situation, it's an unbelievable story that that she had to endure, that she's still, still enduring to this day, you know, losing the love of her life and raising her two sons alone and those different things. But I do have a favorite quote that I want to share with you because I, I definitely want to encourage you to go listen to episode 198 of this podcast. You should definitely check out this book. But this is a quote from when she goes to the airport with her two boys to receive the body of her dead husband. I thought that this was absolutely amazing. With a storm forecasted to move in that day, it was breezy and the air was crisp as we stepped through the door into the bright light of the day. I pulled my sweater tight around me as one by one we filed carefully down the metal steps to an area where we were to await the plane. We were offered earplugs for the noise. I helped the boys put theirs in, but I declined any for myself. I wanted to feel and hear the full impact of everything, just as Brian had when he died. No comforts, nothing to soften the blow. I needed to stare this beast down, even if it brought me to my knees. I repeated in my head the thoughts that had kept me going since the beginning of October. I am heartbroken, but I am not broken. I will face this with fury and let every ounce of it hit me full force and dare it to break me. I've heard it said that you marry your equal. If that's true, 
I'm a beast, a force to be reckoned with. I will do Brian proud. This is my mantra. I will take deep breaths, hold my children close, and handle things. I will not be another victim of the men who took my husband's life and those of his fellow soldiers. Those men were left in a desert without a choice, but I have a choice. My children and I will not be further victims of this tragedy. We will be victors. Guys, I don't think I need to say another word about it. That is the most impactful book from 2021, Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth by Michelle Black. All right, now let's go on to the most entertaining book. And the most entertaining book that I read not from 2021 is Mission Blacklist Number 1, the inside story of the search for Saddam Hussein as told by the soldier who masterminded his capture. And that's by Eric Maddox from 2008. Let me read the short description here. A behind-the-scenes chronicle of the search for Saddam Hussein is a dramatic, moment-by-moment narrative account that also profiles the author's nonviolent psychological interrogation method. So, guys, if you want to hear my interview with Eric Maddox where we talked about this book in grave detail, go back to 252, episode 252 of this podcast. But the reason why this is the most entertaining book is because I usually have the most entertaining category for fiction. Because that's kind of what fiction's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a thrill ride. It's supposed to take you on a journey. And, you know, we're going to get to some on this list that were certainly that. But this book read like like a spy novel, right? It read like a Jack Carr novel because I, I just could not believe that these things were actually happening during these interrogations. You know, all these close calls where they thought they had Saddam Hussein, but then they missed him, but then they went over here. And everything seemed like it was straight out of a Hollywood script in a too-good-to-be-true Hollywood script. And so it was a very, very fun ride. It's a great book for you guys to check out. Here's my favorite quote from this. And this was after they had actually captured Saddam Hussein. I've got a souvenir for you, Eric, he said as we greeted each other. Is it my share of the 1.9 million, I asked? He laughed. No, we already spent that. But when we pulled Saddam out of the hole, we found a couple of things he kept close to him. There was a nine millimeter pistol he gave, uh, that we gave to President Bush, and there was a box of Cuban cigars. He pulled out a cigar and handed it to me. We saved one for you. So, I mean, he has not smoked that cigar to this day. He has it in a safe place, but he has one of the cigars that was at Saddam's side when he was captured. So that's pretty awesome. So that is the most entertaining book that I read this year, not from 2021. Mission Blacklist, number one, the inside story of the search for Saddam Hussein, as told by the soldier who masterminded his capture by Eric Maddox. And the one for this year, the most entertaining book, is The Devil's Hand by Jack Carr. So surprise, surprise, I mentioned Jack Carr just a second ago, but The Devil's Hand was his latest novel in his series, in his James Reese series. It was the fourth novel, but we'll read the description here. It's been 20 years since 9-11, two decades since the United States was attacked on home soil and set out to make the guilty pay with their lives. In the shadows, the enemy has been patient, learning and adapting, and the enemy is ready to strike again. A new president offers hope to a country weary of conflict. He's a young, popular, self-made visionary, but he's also a man with a secret. Halfway across the globe, a regional superpower struggles with sanctions imposed by the United States and her European allies, a country whose ancient religion spawned a group of ruthless assassins. Faced with internal dissent and extrajudicial targeted killings by the United States and Israel, the Supreme Leader puts a plan in motion to defeat the most powerful nation on earth. Meanwhile, the young PhD student has gained access to a bioweapon thought to be confined to a classified military laboratory known only to a select number of officials. A second generation agent, he has been assigned a mission that will bring his adopted homeland to its knees. So I had Jack on this podcast on episode 168. So this was as he was in the process of finishing this book. And so you can go back and check out episode 168 of this podcast. But guys, do I really need to describe why I named this as the most entertaining book I read this year? You can pretty much be assured 
that his novels are going to win most entertaining or going to win best fiction every single year. Cause I messaged Jack after I finished the devil's hand this year. And I was like, brother, I don't know if, if I'm just getting better at reading or if you're just getting better at writing, because every single year I feel like you won up the, the previous year's book. So the devil's hand again is just one of the most entertaining books that I've read maybe ever, but it's definitely the most entertaining book I read from this year by Jack Carr. Oh, but before I let you go off of that one, let me read you a favorite quote from that. One of the most striking proofs of personal existence of Satan is found in the fact that he has so influenced the minds of multitudes in reference to his existence and doings as to make them believe that he does not exist. So that is my favorite quote from that book from The Devil's Hand by Jack Carr. But let's move on to the next one here. Best Fiction. So best fiction, not from 2021, that is Animal Farm. And that is from uh, George Orwell in 1945. So I've got a lot, a lot of repeats with Orwell and Bauckham and, and all those different things, but there will be one more that you'll see here in a second. But here's a description of Animal Farm. George Orwell's timeless and timely allegorical novel, a scathing satire on the downtrodden society, blind, downtrodden society's blind march towards totalitarianism. The book tells the story of a group of farm animals who rebel against their human farmer, hoping to create a society where the animals can be equal, free, and happy. Ultimately, however, the rebellion is betrayed and the farm ends up in a state as bad as it was before under the dictatorship of a pig named Napoleon. Today, it is devastatingly clear that whenever and wherever freedom is attacked, under whatever banner, the cutting clarity and savage comedy of George Orwell's masterpiece have a meaning and message still ferociously fresh. So a lot of people will buy and read Animal Farm and 1984 together, both from George Orwell, and there's a lot of great reasons for that. But the reason why I put this as best best fiction as opposed to 1984 is because I felt like this one was the most descriptive of kind of the the degradation of our society from within that we're experiencing right now. You have people that are looking at, you know, the farmer in this case, which might be big government or might be, you know, whatever, just society in general, and they're trying to tear it down from the inside because they know better, Right. Just like the animals on this farm, they know better, but just like with any, you know, authoritarian takeover into a totalitarian regime, it only benefits the people at the tippy top, right? It doesn't benefit all people. That's why communism doesn't work. That's why socialism doesn't work in practices because it's ran by fallible humans that will screw people over. And my favorite quote from that book is animals are all, or sorry, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. So I feel like that is, you know, maybe the most important quote from that book, but that's also applicable to today. So that is the best fiction book I read this year. That was not from this year, Animal Farm by George Orwell. Now the best fiction book I read this year from this year is A Man at Arms by Stephen Pressfield. So I'll get into the description here. Jerusalem and the Sinai Desert. Uh, sorry, we'll start over. This is not going well. Here we go. Jerusalem and the Sinai Desert, AD 55. In the turbulent aftermath of the, aftermath of the crucifixion of Jesus, agents of the Roman Empire receive information about a pilgrim bearing an incendiary letter from a religious fanatic calling himself Paul, the apostle, to insurrectionists in Corinth. What's in the letter could bring down the empire. The Romans hire a former legionary, a solitary man-at-arms named Telamon, to interpret or to intercept the letter and destroy the courier and just, oh God, this is not going well, guys. I'm trying. You know, when you have to read this much, I'm sorry to Stephen Pressfield. We're just going to start at the beginning of that sentence here. The Romans hire a former legionary, a solitary man-at-arms named Telamon to intercept a letter and destroy the courier. Telamon fights for money not principles. He's been promised a rich reward. Should he fail, the punishment is death by crucifixion. But once he meets the courier, Telamon experiences an extraordinary conversion and instead of carrying out the mission, takes on the empire. Now, 
He came on episode 182 of this podcast to talk about this book. He sent this book to me, you know, months in advance of kind of when it actually uh, was released. And so I was able to take it in well before. And in that particular podcast, I kind of broke it up to where there's like a before the outro and after the outro. So for those of you that actually read the book after the outro is really interesting because I give a lot of spoilers and we get into kind of why he did this and why he did that. But I want to read my favorite quote uh, from this actual book. And it's from the very beginning. And I'm actually going to read it from the advanced copy that he sent me. Um, And this is the moment that the young man in this book, David realizes that he could follow Telamon, that he could follow the man in arms. So it's a somewhat lengthy part from the end of uh, book two inside this book, but I'll go and get into that here. David knew at once that he would follow this man. What he taught, David would learn. What he commanded, David would perform. He, the youth, would enroll himself in the Academy of the Highway in the School of Conflict. Such secrets as the man-at-arms might impart, David knew, would have to be prized from him one lesson at a time, one action, one word. David did not care. Whatever the price, he would pay it. Why this one? David asked himself now as he trekked in the train of this solitary mercenary. Why him and not one of the thousands of pikemen and archers and cavalry riders, Jew and Gentile, whom David had encountered over the short but keenly observed span of years? David sensed something about this individual. He could not have articulated, articulated its essence, even in part, even to himself. Yet the boy felt in this man something deeper and more profound than simply strength or skill or even Andrea, manly virtue in the Greek sense. This man in arms had a religion too. It was not a faith of the lamp or of the blessed by and by. It was not a soldier's code or a code of honor. It was sterner and more solitary, a doctrine shorn of pity even for oneself, but which touched somehow, David sensed, upon the truth as immutable as death and as primal as creation. David resolved that he would give all he had, all he ever would have, to acquire that which the miss man in arm possessed. This wisdom, this understanding, the knowledge of these mysteries, he would die to be and to become himself like this man. Just an absolutely fantastic book. I mean, you want to talk about Thrill Ride. This could have uh, won a bunch of other different awards inside of this particular episode, but I figured I'd give it the Best Fiction Award for 2021, and that is A Man in Arms by Stephen Pressfield. All right, now we're going to get into the best reread book. So this is a book that I've read in the past, but that I'm rereading and that I reread this year. And so I've already talked about this one on this podcast, but that is 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. And that was released by Jordan B. Peterson in 2018. That is a top 10, maybe even a top three book for me in my entire life. But for any of you that have never heard of it, let me read the description to you here. What does everyone in modern in the modern world know or need to know? Renowned psychologist Jordan B. Peterson's answer to this most difficult of questions uniquely combines the hard-won truths of ancient tradition with the stunning revelations of cutting-edge scientific research. Humorous, surprising, and informative, Dr. Peterson tells us why skateboarding boys and girls must be left alone, what terrible fate awaits those who criticize too easily, and why you should always pet a cat when you meet one in the street. What does the nervous system of the lowly lobster have to tell us about standing up straight with our shoulders back and about success in life? Why did ancient Egyptians worship the capacity to pay care Careful attention as the highest of gods. What dreadful paths do people tread when they become resentful, arrogant, and vengeful? Dr. Peterson Peterson journeys broadly discussing discipline, freedom, adventure, and responsibility, distilling the word's wisdom into 12 practical and profound rules for life. 12 Rules for Life shatters the modern commonplaces of science, faith, and human nature while transforming and ennobling the mind with the spirit of its readers. So why this is the best reread 
Again, this is a book that I think I've read three or four times now. Um, every time I read it, I have to find a different highlight color because I'm finding things that I didn't find in the initial translation or in the initial, not translation, but the initial reading. And then also I've done a couple of different times where I've read through the book by listening to it, right? So I've listened to Jordan Peterson actually read his book and it provides a lot of profound impact. And there's so many great quotes from this book, but this is my favorite one. And this is from rule 11. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Men have to toughen up. Men demand it and women want it. Even though they may not approve of the harsh and contemptuous attitude that is part and parcel of the socially demanding process that fosters and then enforces that toughness. Some women don't like losing their baby boys, so they keep them forever. Some women don't like men and would rather have a submissive mate, even if he is useless. This also provides them with plenty to feel sorry for themselves about as well. The pleasures of such self-pity should not be underestimated. Men toughen up by punishing themselves and by pushing each other. So obviously, if you guys listen to my show for any length of time, you know, I agree with a lot of the stuff in there. So the best reread that I did from this year is 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos by Jordan B. Peterson. All right, now we're going to get into the most disappointing book, okay? So the most disappointing book that I read this year that was not from 2021 is The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane, and that was released in 1895. So let me read the description to you here. The Red Badge of Courage is a war novel by American author Stephen Crane. Taking place during the American Civil War, the story is about a young private of the Union Army, Henry Fleming, who flees from the field of battle. Overcome with shame, he longs for a wound, a red badge of courage to counteract his cowardice. When his regiment once again faces the enemy, Henry acts as a standard bearer. Although Crane was born after the war and he had not and had not had time to experience battle firsthand, the novel is known for its realism. He began writing what would become his second novel in 19 or in 1893 using various co contemporary and written accounts, such as those published previously by Century Magazine as inspiration. It is believed that he based his fictional battle on that of Chancellorville. He also had uh, given interviews to veterans of the 124th New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment, commonly known as the Orange Blossoms. Initially shortened and, ster and serialized in newspapers in December 1894, the novel was published in full in October of 1895. A longer version of the work based on Crane's original manuscript was published in 1982. So the reason why this was the most disappointing book that I read this year is, as I have mentioned to you guys before on previous podcasts, it's really, really hard for me to follow fiction, okay? If it doesn't grip me from the very, very beginning and basically drag me through like some of the stuff I've already described from Jack Carr or from Stephen Pressfield, it's very, very hard for me to, to pay attention. And that happened to me with this book. So I'm not saying that this classic book is bad. Okay. I'm about to get into some bad books here in a second, but it was disappointing because I, I was very excited to take in this book. I was very excited to, to kind of learn from it, but for whatever reason, there was some sort of a block whenever I went through this book, which basically means I'm going to have to try to do it again at some point in the future to go through it because I know that this book is a fantastic book. The, the number of people that suggested it to me uh, would basically be evidence to that, but it was disappointing because I basically didn't feel like I got very much out of it. Now, the most disappointing book that I, that I read in 2000, 2021 it, that was from this year is Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And that's by James Clear. So this is a book I actually uh, forgot to put the description here. So I'm gonna go ahead and look it up real quick. The thing about this book that is interesting to me is that it's it was suggested to me by about a thousand different people. Um, and one of the things about this book that I felt like was very, very interesting is the, the completely different uh, number of ways that people describe this book and why it would be awesome and why I should read it. But let me go ahead and read, uh, read the introduction to it here, the description here. 
No matter what your goals, Atomic Habits offers a proven framework for improving every day. James Clear, one of the world's leading experts on habit formation, reveals practical strategies that will teach you exactly how to form good habits, break bad ones, and master the tiny behaviors that lead to remarkable results. So here's the thing about this book, why I thought it was the most disappointing book. Because this book could have not been titled Atomic Habits. It could have been titled How to Be an Adult. Or this is blatantly obvious. The thing about reading through this book is if you're a dutiful person, if you're a dependable, reliable person, you're reading through this like, yeah, and? Yeah, yeah, and? Yeah, I get it, and? Like a a lot of the things that he described in this book were just basic common knowledge. Okay. Now I will say there was one thing that I took away from this book. That's a quote that I've been able to take through and give to other people. It's that winners and losers have the same goals. Now I feel like that. I I really wish I wouldn't have wasted, you know, several hours reading through this entire book to come away with, you know, winners and losers have the same goals. That's a great thing to think through and a great thing to think about. Like, Hey man, there can only be one gold medal winner. There can only be one person at the top of the heap. So that may not be you. And it may just be unfair. You may not be tall enough. You may not be smart enough, whatever the situation is. But again, this book I, I felt like was very, very disappointing because of the sheer number of people that, that suggested it to me. Now, this book also, I'm going to be in the major minority here because I think this book has been in the top 10 on the New York Times bestseller list for like two or three years at this point, or not not two years, it was released this year. But it's just one of those things where I found it, or actually, just kidding, I, I messed up my own podcast because this book was not released in 2021. This book was released in 2018. But at the same time, this book was very, very hard to get through um, because it was so simple and it just didn't really didn't really jive with my brain for whatever reason. So again, I know I kind of messed it up because this book was released f- several years ago. I know a lot of you guys are going to disagree with me, but there you go. I gave you two not from 2021 that are most disappointing, but this one was Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Even, even in the subtitle, an easy way to break bad habits, there's no easy way to break it. But anyway, we can be done with that one. Now we're going to move on to the worst book category, okay? So we're gonna get into the worst book that I read this year, okay, from from 2021. But guys, I gotta prepare myself because I've literally been stewing about this book since February. This is the worst book that I've ever read cover to cover because as you know, I'm the type of guy that I have to finish books, which you remember that I said that here in a second when we talk about the book after this one, okay? But the worst book, that I read, not from 2021, but read this year, is The Way of the Superior Man, A Spiritual Guide to Mastering the Challenges of Women, Work, and Sexual Desire from 2017 by David, I think you pronounce his last name, Data, D-E-I-D-A, David Data or Dida, whatever. So the thing about this book is just by the title, The Way of the Superior Man, this has been on my want to read list for several years, never really got around to it. But then it was picked as our book that we were going to be going through in my foxhole. And um, I was very excited to read this. And now the, the subtitle, you know, a spiritual guide to mastering the challenges of women, work and sexual desire. Ooh, I was like, oh, okay, well, it's going to be a little bit new agey, but I bet I can get through it. Let me read the description and then I'll get into why I think it's the worst book. No matter your goals, or <laughs> here now I got my notes all messed up. So I, I got my notes, uh, you know, for a, a different book, uh, from the last one. So here I am going to have to go over to Amazon again and do this live. So guys, you can just make fun of me later. It's all okay. Uh, the way of the superior man. All right, here we go. You know, you get this far into the podcast, you know, I got my notes all squared away for the rest of it. You know, I should, I make a mistake towards the end. It's no big deal. All right, let's read it here. 
Though much has changed in society since the first publication of The Way of the Superior Man, men of all ages still tussle with the challenges of women, work, and sexual desire. Including an all-new preface by the author David Data, this 20th anniversary edition of the classic guide to male spirituality offers the next generation the opportunity to cultivate trust in the moment and put forth the best versions of themselves in an ever-changing world. So there's there's more of the description here, but I feel like I'm going to throw up. So I need to just kind of talk about why this is the worst book. So I'm not going to give you a quote from this book. Because there is not a great quote from this book. But the reason why this is the worst book is because basically from beginning to end, it's all hogwash. This guy makes these grandiose statements about psychology, about biology, about every single thing that you could possibly imagine within the psyche and the physicality of a man and provides zero citations. So some of you, you aren't reading and then you don't actually check the citations, but the fact that no citations were even listed made me made me really, really concerned towards the beginning of this book because he's making these huge statements and providing nothing to back it up. No data, no studies, no other books, no other authors' words. It's just this guy saying things, right? And he's making such big statements that you would think at some point he would, you know, someone would be like, hey, in your 20th anniversary of this book, how about we put some citations in the back? But this, this book is like complete woo-woo. That that is the the number one thing that I kept thinking as I was reading through this book is this is complete woo woo and it's talking about it's kind of all this new agey stuff about how you can kind of control the minds of women and what you need to do in order to kind of go here and in order to be like sexually tantric and all this blah 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 bullcrap. I mean, my goodness, I had to finish reading this book because we were reading it in our foxhole, and part of me wanted to finish reading the entire thing so that I could include it on this list. This book is a steaming heaping pile of garbage. Okay. Uh, the, the book from a few years ago, I think it was called like, uh, there was some self-help book that I, uh, talked about on this podcast a few years ago. That was so, so bad. I find your why there it was. And so, uh, or there was like, find your why. And then start with why I was like, I didn't think I would read a worse book than those books. Cause they were such, such, you know, garbage. This is the worst book that I've ever read in my entire life. Guys do not read this book. Do not try to prove me wrong. But, and, and, but you know what, if you've read this book and you love it, please send me an email info at undaunted.life and let me know what I missed because I'm telling you, this book was absolute, absolute garbage. I cannot believe I wasted so much time on that. The way of the superior man, a spiritual guide to mastering the challenges of women, work and sexual desire from David data. Now, the worst book that I read from 2021 is your brain is always listening. Tame the hidden dragons that control your happiness habits and hangups by Daniel Amen. Now I'll say from the beginning, well, actually let me read the description. Then we'll get into why I'm saying all these things. Your brain is always listening and responding to these hidden influences. And unless you recognize and deal with them, they can steal your happiness, spoil your relationships and sabotage your health. This book will teach you to tame the dragons from the past that ignite your most painful emotions, negative thought dragons that attack you, fueling anxiety and depression. They and them dragons, people in your life whose own dragons do battle with yours, bad habit dragons that increase the chances you'll be overweight, overwhelmed, and an underachiever, addicted dragons that make you lose control of your health, wealth, and relationships, and scheming dragons, advertisers, and social media sites that steal your attention. Dr. Daniel Amen shows you how to recognize harmful dragons and gives you the weapons to vanquish them. With these practical tools, you will stop feeling sad, mad, nervous, or out of control and start being happier, calmer, and more in control of your own destiny. Now with this book, this is another book that we were going over in my foxhole on Sundays. It's actually a book that we're going through that we're in the middle of right now. This is one of the few books in my entire life that I started and stopped reading. Okay. 
Because one of the things that I've changed is, and I'm trying to get get off of, is I'm a finisher, right? So if I start a movie, even if it sucks, I'm by golly, I'm going to finish this movie. You know, if I start this show, by golly, I'm going to finish it. If I start this book, by golly, I'm going to finish it. But now, the level of reading I'm going to be doing in order to prep for interviews and prep for shows, and in the limited amount of time that I have now with one kid on Earth, and you know, one kid on Earth, but in my wife's stomach, and how life's going to change in 2022, I just can't give extra time to things that stink, or things that that aren't any good, or things that aren't going to go anywhere, or things that I'm going to have to provide a whole lot more of myself to just to get even a modicum of something out of. And that's what happened to me with this book. Because after the second or third part of this book, this guy had basically called everything that could be possibly negative in your life a dragon. And he gave that dragon a name, and that's kind of the theme of the book, and he's got like a website you can go to to find out which dragon is yours. But all of the deciding factors as to whether or not this dragon is a dragon in your life was so common to the majority of humanity to the point of being useless to even define. And so you, you do this test. I think there were initially 12 dragons. And then by the next part, there were like 30 dragons. And by the next part, there were like 70 dragons. And you're checking so many of these questions as yes. You come out of even the first parts of this book thinking, oh my gosh, I've got all these dragons attacking me at all times. And the thing about that is you can be a fairly well-adjusted person. That, that has a lot of things going right for you. You know, you're spiritually, mentally, and physically in the, in the right place. And you can read a book like this and be like, oh my gosh, I'm completely jacked up. I need to blow up my entire life and change everything I'm doing because I read this stupid book about dragons, right? It's not even about dragons, it's all made up dragons, right? And so the thing is, a lot of people are getting something from this work, even in my foxhole. A lot of people get stuff from the work of Dr. Daniel Amen. But I just had a fundamental problem with what he was discussing and how he was discussing it in this particular book, because if everything's a problem, nothing's a problem. Because if everyone is attacking you, you can't attack anyone back, right? It just, it's impossible to deal with things. And so you might say, hey, Kyle, you know, you know, go into that book and you define your dragons, but then just pick one to fight with. But just fundamentally, it was so hard to get past that in this book. So this is one of those books that I just could not finish reading. Right. I just moved on to other books. I was like, okay, I'm going to put that in a different pile. I I was going to give it my full effort that I normally do, but I just couldn't get there with this book. I just could not get there. So, guys, your brain is always listening. Tame the Hidden Dragons That Control Your Happiness, Habits, and Hangups by Daniel Amen. That was the worst book from 2021. But now, guys, we've made it all the way through here. We've only got two categories left. So, this is almost the best book. Okay. The reason why I do this is because I hate when people say honorable mention for some reason, so I'm going to make it even more convoluted. Almost the best book. So almost the best book from a year that's not 2021 is The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church by Albert Moeller. And this was just released last year in 2022. So here's the description. Western civilization and the Christian church stand at a moment of great danger. Facing them both is a hurricane force battle of ideas that will determine the future of Western civilization and the soul of the Christian church. The forces arrayed against the West and the church are destructive ideologies, policies, and worldviews deeply established among intellectual elites, the political class, and our schools. More menacingly, these forces have also invaded the Christian church. The perils faced by the West and the church are unprecedented. Threats to religious liberty, redefinitions of marriage and family, attacks on the sacredness and dignity of human life. How should Christians respond to this multifaceted challenge? Addressing each dimension of this challenge, the gathering storm provides answers and equips Christians both to give an answer for the hope that lives within them and to contend for the faith that has once and for all delivered to the saints. So again, 
I thought this book was absolutely fantastic. About halfway through reading this book, I went ahead and put it on my 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. I've talked about it nauseam at this point at how important Dr. Albert Moeller and the stuff that he does, especially with the briefing, his podcast, and what that does for me, what that does for this show, and what that does for the listeners of this show. But this book is a coalescing of a lot of the things that he talks about and sort of the cultural drift that we've seen. There's a lot of great quotes, but here's my favorite quote from that book. The secular temptation confuses beliefs with emotions, suggesting that all that matters is feelings and fulfillment. And the society, or as a society has become more secular, even faithful church members unwittingly adopt strange and unbiblical ways of thinking and believing. Furthermore, the ambient theological liberalism around us made inroads into many churches. Secularization exerts upon the church both passive and active pressure. The pressure is passive in that as society turns away from any semblance of a biblical morality, churches sacrifice confessional conviction on the altar of cultural relevance. Just an absolutely fantastic book. Guys, guys, just you should definitely check this one out. The Gathering Storm, Secularism, Culture, and the Church by Albert Muller. And then almost the best book, almost, it was right there, almost the best book of 2021, Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metaxas? Here's the description here. Is Atheism Dead is an entertaining, impressively wide-ranging, and decidedly provocative answer to the famous 1966 time cover in itself provocatively asked, Is God Dead? In a voice that is by turns witty, muscular, and poetic, Metaxas intentionally echoes C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton in cheerfully and logically making his astonishing case, along with his way of presenting breathtaking and often withering new evidence and arguments against the ideas of a creatorless universe. Taken all together, he shows atheism not merely to be implausible and intellectually sloppy, but now demonstrably ridiculous. Perhaps the only unanswered question on the subject is why we couldn't see this sooner and how embarrassed we should be about it. I mean, he's got a very tongue-in-cheek way of writing. I absolutely love Eric Metaxas's writing. We were able to have him on for a short show into, oh, on episode 248 of this podcast to talk about this book. We hope to have him on in the first quarter of 2022 to talk even more about this book but also other books. But this book is, you know, it's about 450 pages, but it gets into science and kind of the fine tuning arguments. It gets into archaeology. It gets into some of the atheistic arguments that don't stand up to even philosophical criticism. It's just a fantastic read. And I got to be honest, I got more positive reactions uh, after he came on the podcast and more people that were like sending me screenshots of them buying this book. And again, it's not an easy book to read uh, for the most part because it, you know, it's long and it gets kind of heady in certain places. But my goodness, it is such an important and great book. A lot of great quotes from it, but here's one of my favorites. But as Western culture has become increasingly secular, many of us have looked to science to be something like a new priesthood dispensing wisdom they do not have. So that is a direct attack on people that basically have the scientism point of view that want the scientists to give us all the answers to everything, even though their worldview will simply not allow for that. All right, guys, we've made it all the way through to the end here. Thank you for hanging around because now we are going to get into the best book that I read this year. And we're going to get into the two categories. So the best book that I read this year, not from 2021. Black Rednecks and White Liberals, and that's by Thomas Sowell, and that's from 2009. Here's the description. This explosive new book challenges many of the long-prevailing assumptions about blacks, about Jews, about Germans, about slavery, and about education. Plainly written, powerfully reasoned, and backed with a startling array of documented facts, Black Rednecks and White Liberals takes on not only the trendy intellectuals of our times, but also such historic interpreters of American life as Alexis de Tocqueville and Frederick Law Olmsted. In a series of long essays, this book presented as an in-depth look at key beliefs behind many uh, mistaken and dangerous actions, policies, and trends. 
and presents eye-opening insights into the historical development of the ghetto culture that is today wrongly seen as a unique black identity, a culture cheered on, on towards self-destruction by white liberals who consider themselves friends of blacks. An essay titled The Real History of Slavery presents a jolting re-examination of that tragic institution in the narrow and distorted way it is often seen today. The reasons for the venomous hatred of Jews and other groups like them in countries around the world are explored in an easy in an essay that it's uh, that adds asks, are Jews generic? Misconceptions of German history in general and of the Nazi era in particular are also re-examined. So too are the inspiring achievements and painful tragedies of black education in the United States. Black Rednecks and White Liberals is the capstone of decades of outstanding research and writing on racial and cultural issues by Thomas Sowell. Um, guys, this book is the first book that I read from cover to cover of Thomas Sowell's, okay? They'd always kind of been in the background, but a lot of his books are very, very long. They're very involved. And I wanted to make sure that was something that we were going to be able to, to take on. And I was going to really be able to spend time with. And luckily we read this book in our foxhole this year. So, you know, we, we struck out with a couple of the, the dragon book and the, the stupid uh, man spirit book or whatever, but this book was absolutely fantastic. I mean, from beginning to end, the thing that was mind blowing was the sheer number of citations, right? I, I talked about that earlier with the Thomas Sowell book, but he's making I think in the first essay of that book, I think there were over 200 or maybe even over 300 citations. In one paragraph, there would be a dozen citations, right? So this guy's reading books and studies and pamphlets from, from all over the place to make his arguments. And Thomas Sowell is literally one of the most underrated modern e economists that we have, but one of the most underrated modern thinkers that we have. And it's because he's on the right. And so if he was a leftist, if he had a leftist point of view, or if he had stayed being a communist because he was a communist earlier in his life, he would be one of the most foreknown uh, you know, people on the planet to, to talk about anything. He'd be on the news all the time. He'd be on Joe Rogan two or three times a year. Like that, that would kind of be the thing with this guy. But since he was on the right and since he has a more conservative worldview, we don't know as much about Thomas Sowell. There's way too many great quotes from, from this book, but I picked two that I wanted to actually give to you guys here. So this is my first favorite quote from fairly earlier in the book. The general orientation of white liberals has been one of what can we do for them? What blacks can do for themselves has not only been of lesser interest, but much of what blacks have in fact already done for themselves has been overshadowed by liberal attempts to get them special dispensations, whether affirmative action, reparations for slavery, or other race-based benefits. Even when the net effect of these dispensations has been much less than the effect of blacks' own self-advancement. For example, although the greatest reduction in poverty among blacks occurred before the civil rights revolution of the 1960s, the liberal vision in which blacks lag or black lag uh, are explained by white oppression requires black advances to be examined by the fight against such oppression symbolized by the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. This scenario has been repeated so often through so many channels that it has become a well-known fact by sheer repetition. Moreover, this protest and government action model has become the liberals preferred, if not universal model for future black advancement. Okay, so this is, and I, I don't need this, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but Thomas Sowell is a black man saying these things, so he's exactly cutting against the liberal ideology, especially when it comes to race issues. And this is my second favorite quote here, which goes into slavery. Slavery was an evil of greater scope and magnitude than most people imagine, and as a result, its place in history is radically different from the way it is usually portrayed. Mention slavery and immediately the image that arises is that of Africans and their descendants enslaved by Europeans and their descendants in the southern United States, or at most, Africans enslaved by Europeans in the Western Hemisphere. 
No other historic horror is so narrowly construed. No one thinks of war, famine, or decimation uh, or decimating epidemics in such localized terms. These are afflictions that have been suffered uh, by the entire human race all over the planet, and so was slavery. Had slavery been limited to one race in one country during three centuries, its tragedies would not have been one-tenth the magnitude that they were in fact. Why this provisional view of the world of a world wide evil. Often it is those who are most critical of the Eurocentric view and of the world who are the most Eurocentric when it comes to the evils and failings of the human race. Why would anyone wish to arbitrarily understate an evil that plagued mankind for thousands of years unless it was not this evil itself that was the real concern, but rather the present day uses of historical evil? Clearly the ability to score ideological points against American society or Western civilization or to induce guilt or thereby extract benefits from the white population to Today are greatly enhanced by making enslavement appear to be peculiarly American or a peculiarly white crime. So that guys, this book is chock full of huge quotes like that, that kind of break down a lot of the normal things that we see when it comes to what people think in terms of slavery, in terms of racism, in terms of educational things. And uh, he's got another book called D Discrimination and Disparities that I hope to take on next year. But man, just an absolutely, absolutely fantastic book. It is easily the best book I read this year that was not from 2021, Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. But now we've got our last and perhaps the most important, um, you know, important award that we've going to, that we're going to be giving. And that is the best book of 2021 from 2021. And that is going to drum roll, please only cry for the living memos from inside the ISIS battlefield by Holly McKay. So here's the description here. Only once in a lifetime does a war so brutal erupt a war that becomes an official genocide caused million or causes millions to run from their homes, compels the slaughtering of thousands in the most horrific ways and inspires terrorist attacks to transpire across the world. That is the chilling legacy of the ISIS onslaught and only cry for the living takes a profoundly personal unprecedented dive into one of the most brutal terrorist organizations in the world. Journalist Holly S. McKay offers a raw on the ground journey, chronicling the rise of ISIS in Iraq, exposing the group's vast impact and how and why it sought to wage war on civilians in a desperate attempt to create an antiquated caliphate. So we had Holly on this podcast on episode 188, and we went into a ton of detail on that podcast about exactly what was happening in that time, exactly all the things that went into that book. And man, that book is just, it's a heavy book. I mean, just like with Michelle Black's book with Sacrifice, there were several times during this book where I had to separate myself from my computer. I just could not read another word because of these, just the brutality that she describes. And, you know, I actually talked to her a lot about that in the interview I did on episode 188 of this podcast. And we talked a lot about how she's able to basically operate as a journalist and seeing all these horrible things going on around her. You know, how, how she's able to maintain her professionalism and do all these different things. And it, it, it's tough. You know, it was absolutely tough to to hear from her how she dealt with that. And it was tough to read it throughout. But there's several quotes from here. And I'm actually, uh, you know, not going to be able to do just a single favorite quote. So I'll read three quotes to you here. The first two aren't very long. Third one's a little bit longer. But here are my favorite quotes. And I guess it's hard to say favorite because what I'm going to say is so brutal. But here we go. Here's the first one. Women were throwing their children from the mountains and then jumping themselves because it was a faster way to die, Katoon said, recalling the days after ISIS surrounded the foot of the mountain. Those who had nowhere to go but to the tops of the mountain slowly died from starvation and heat stroke, deserted by the saviors of the world and all its supposed modern technology. So here's the second quote here. 
ISIS had abducted Yazidi girls as young as eight, trading them at the market for a few dollars. I learned of one young mother who was pregnant at the time of this capture. She had given birth in the back room of her overlord's home, but was not permitted to feed her newborn son. The baby cried and cried, Katun said flatly. The Muslim militant beheaded him. I mean, just brutal. Newborn baby beheaded, beheaded. But here's, here's the, the one that really takes the cake, and it, it's hard to get through, and I've read it before, but here we go. Here's a third quote. Look, Baba Chawish said to me monotonously, as if he were merely pointing out paintings in a gallery, they cooked the children. The rage he may have once felt bubbling in his gut was now stillborn. The incense had burned out. Baba Chawish seemed to understand that there was no point in outwardly showing his anger. It would bring back the burned babies. Maybe someday he would forgive, but he would never forget. I counted seven shriveled babies curled in fetal positions in the photographs, tiny bodies still roasting beyond recognition on what appeared to have been a slate of tin shed. The silent tears wetting my cheeks had turned into guttural sobs I was powerless to control. I stared at the floor and sobbed. No one knew what to say. Those hushed seconds seemed to last forever. Perhaps it was unprofessional to cry so voraciously, but it was a flow I could not stop. I often scold myself for not having thicker skin. Of course, this is naive to think that the world and all its children can be kept harbored from evil. But these babies, their broken bodies, captured in full gorge of the sun, could have been saved. I am certain of that. And I was almost certain these graceful people who never even seen little justice for what had done to them. They knew it too. Finally, someone passed a tissue to wipe my eyes. I glanced up through the glaze and saw the faces around me bereft of emotion. This is nothing. We don't react anymore, Umer said, nonchalantly by way of explanation. There are far worse things that have happened. I realized then that the Yazidis were beyond the point of pain. Their grief had entered a place few in this world could ever comprehend. Their torment and desperation had dried up and dissolved. They had no emotion left to give. For them, there was no fog of war. Everything was reconstructed with precise attention to detail. The numbers of the missing and enslaved, and where they were exactly when their world stopped turning. Every abuse could be recited like a nebulous monologue, but without the theatrical cues and vocals. There was no need to dramatize what had happened to them. So guys, that book, you know, it's 400 some odd pages. I mean, it's an absolutely, absolutely amazing book. I have my, my copy right here. Hopefully you can see that boom right there in the camera. There you go. Um, but it's a brutal book. It's not a fun read uh, by any stretch of the imagination. It's just kind of one of those books that that you have to take in at some point, right? Um, because a lot of guys like to kind of bury their heads in the sand and pretend that bad things aren't happening in the world. But it's books like this that kind of help you understand that these horrible things are happening. And that's one of the reasons why Undaunted Life is here is to equip men to be able to push back darkness. Now, that is a unique kind of darkness, but it's darkness nonetheless. And so we're so thankful to people like Holly McKay that are experiencing these things and writing about it so that we can understand it as well. So guys, that is the best book that I read this year. And and it is, you know, again, it's a book that's going to stick with you. It's a book that we added to our book list, 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. You should definitely check that out on our website. But man, Only Cry for the Living, Memos from the ISIS Battlefield. Um, It is just from inside the ISIS battlefield is just, man, it's a tough book. I mean, even I'm getting tongue tied here at the end. It's just such, such a, a rough book to read, but guys, it is so, so important that you take that down. So you should definitely check that out. 
All right, guys, we made it all the way to the end. I did a bunch of reading out loud. You heard all my mistakes. So if you ever think I'm really, really, really good at this, I want you to remember this podcast. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost out on Daunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got the links to every single one of the books that I gave you this year. So, or gave you from this year or from previous year. So guys, if you missed anything or if you're like, oh, what was the most timely book or what was the most challenging book? Just go back to the show notes. You'll be able to see all of that there. So you can check that out. And I provide you the Amazon links, but wherever you get your books, that is where you should definitely take that stuff in. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can also check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song, Cutting the Tide, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>